It's The Middle with Anthony Weiner on WABC. Taking a step back to look at things with a new perspective. It's The Middle with Anthony Weiner. And good afternoon. I'm Anthony Weiner, and thank you for meeting me in the middle, an hour every Saturday at 2 o'clock, when we take some steps away from the hot takes of the far left and the far right, and try to bring some context to the news of the week or a subject that doesn't find its way into the middle of the conversation enough. Here from 2 to 3, right after this at 3 o'clock, Curtis Lee will come in for left versus right, but without me. Because I am going to be leaving here to head upstate to pick up Jordan from camp. I've been talking about the last couple of weeks, not knowing for sure whether he'd come back. But it's so great to have you along. You can always hear us here on the most powerful AM station on the East Coast, 77 WABC. You can download the app or WABCradio.com. And shortly after the show every week, it goes up as a podcast, so you can subscribe there. Like I said, picking up Jordan today, his mom and I are going up after the show today. He... uh, you know, I explained when they're, when they're at sleepaway camp, I don't get many chances to hear from him, you know, talking. We, we, I think we got two calls. The second call he was this week. He said he's ready to come home. He's having fun, but uh, he took a hockey stick to the mouth. And uh, with the same gender roles that you might expect, I was very proud because to play hockey is to give blood. And his mom was mortified um, but we're going to go up and get him. We're excited. It's it's hot here. It's hot there. He seems to have had a, a fun time at camp. Also, this week, episode three of my podcast, Keys to the City, dropped. The first two episodes. The first one was about stop and frisk and dealing with crime. The second one was about how you get rid of some of the worst performing programs in government. And the structure of it is pretty simple. They're just ideas that I have. Sometimes they're big thoughts. Sometimes not. And then we bring in a guest to talk about whether my idea is all wet or not. Episode 3 dropped this week. And episode 3 was in the neighborhood of pet peeves. And I'm just not going to tell you much about it because I want you to go and download it. But it is about the idea that you need to leave 15 feet on each side of a fire hydrant. You can't park. And I'll just leave it there. It's a bit of a pet peeve of mine. So download that. Tough week for the President of the United States. Not only do two-thirds of Democrats not want him to be their nominee, but he's got covid Maybe you had a different reaction to this than I did, but I'm like, is nobody safe? you got to figure around a 70, 70, whatever year, how old is he, 77 years old? If he's not being protected by everything humanly possible from getting COVID, masking and people around him are testing, literally the entire White House staff has to be tested every day, and he's still getting it. Um, Hopefully he recovers fine, but it makes you wonder, man, I don't— you know, I, I don't if, if if the president of the United States is going to get it, just about anyone can. Let's talk about being safe. We're going to talk about this a little more a little later. But Lee Zeldin, Republican candidate for governor, giving a speech, attacked uh, his attacker, um, was let out. Like I said, we're going to talk about it. Don't don't jump out of your boots yet. We're, well, I am going to talk more about it. So thank goodness he's OK and nothing came, bad came of him. You know. This notion that people may have from watching, you know, fictionalized versions of campaigns, and Curtis will tell you this, you know, you're right in there with a lot of people. And if someone wants to do you harm, they, they can. And we have, we have seen candidates come to harm out on the campaign trail because sometimes they're emotionally disturbed people. Sometimes they're people that want to make a point. Um, so Lee Zeldin, thank God he's fine. He's safe. But it's become a, a, a bigger issue. We'll talk about it. Steve Bannon. Not the hardest case in the world. Basically, he didn't put on any defense. You cannot ignore a subpoena from Congress to come testify. You just can't do it. It's a crime. Usually people don't get prosecuted for it because they usually work out some kind of a deal. But um, now he is to be sentenced. I think he's he could do as much of a year in prison. I'd, I'd be nervous if I were he because just like there are some cases that you can say, well, no one ever goes to jail for that. No one ever goes to jail for what I did. And, and but, the, but judges sometimes say, listen, we need to send a message with high-profile people. So Steve Bannon will be sentenced sometime next month. So as we like to do at the beginning of each episode, we do some numbers of the week, um, some interesting things that came across the transom here on key on, uh, on the middle. Uh, first one is 9.08, and that is the number in cost, $9.08 for one unit of insulin 
in France. Now, United Kingdom, it's $7.52. Australia, $6.94. And why do I make that one of the numbers of the week? Because here in the United States, it is $98.70, 10 times as much as it is other places. And before you say, oh, thank you, Joe Biden, for another example of inflation. No, it's traditionally been that high. Because unlike other countries that negotiate on behalf of their citizens lower prices, we don't. And one of the things that was in the bill this week that was killed when Joe Manchin decided he didn't want to go along was a policy uh, that Democrats and Republicans alike support. And that is when Medicare and Medicaid, we purchase a lot of drugs in bulk and we can negotiate for lower prices and we're not doing it. We want pharmaceutical companies to make a lot of money. We want them to be profitable, so they invest in producing other drugs. But now it's just uh, out of control, and hopefully they'll figure out a way to get that bill passed. It would say that Medicare can negotiate for the lowest prices possible. Another number of the week, one. That is the number of texts from the Secret Service that were recovered from the days January 5th, 6th, and 7th that they were looking for as part of the investigation of what went down that day. And it was a big mystery. A couple of mysteries emerged this week. One is... Apparently, the inspector general of the Department of Homeland Security knew that these text messages had been deleted for some reason months ago and didn't say anything to the committee. So we all found out about it just this week. But I think the real tell of what happened to those text messages came out in the hearings on Thursday of the January 6th committee. There was testimony, and if you didn't hear it, and I know that some people are not interested, but if you didn't hear it, you should at least go back and listen to this part. There were testimony from people that were listening to the traffic, and they played some of it um, at the hearing. That the the radio traffic going back and forth, and the text traffic was described of these Secret Service agents that were charged with protecting the vice president, and they were saying on text and on radio, telling the the people at base to say goodbye to their families for them because they thought they were going to perish. That's how close they came. And obviously then that's how close the vice president came that day. They were within feet of the rioters being outside the Capitol where they were holding the vice president. And so maybe a lot of these texts got deleted intentionally because of the concerns about privacy for people saying intimate things to their family members or what. Um, but only one of those texts – I don't think we've heard the last of the story. I think we're going to find out, um, find out more. And now the last two numbers are about the subject I want to talk about today. We're going to do a little bit something different here on The Middle today. We're going to focus the entire episode on one subject because it's a big one. It's the subject of crime. And I'm going to read a couple of numbers of the week that will tell you a little bit about the direction I want to go here. And we have a couple of excellent guests coming in after the break um, who are not politicians. They are people who are academics, a foreign police officer. They are people who who I think you're going to find very interesting. I know that I do. So the the two numbers I wanted to finish with, 18, that is the number of days that it was Jose Alba, the bodega owner that was arrested for second-degree murder, the highest murder charge in the the state. Only first-degree murder is higher, and that's for killing a police officer. Um, Hundreds of, I think, $250,000 bail he was being held. And 18 days later, those charges were dropped, and many of us believe it's about time that that videotape showed pretty clearly that he was defending himself. Um, It was a, a... horrible circumstance, and it's going to follow Jose Alba the rest of his life, but he should not be in prison for it or put through the system for it. And 204, that's the number of days as of today that District Attorney Alvin Bragg of New York County, that's what Manhattan is called, um, has been on the job. And uh, we're going to have a conversation today about the notion of, you know, who are we to blame for crime. I mean, for some context, crime is up from last year, but it is down historically. For example, compared to uh, crime when Rudy Giuliani left office after two terms, we are down about 40 percent. Crime is lower now than when Rudy Giuliani left office. And I think a lot of people, myself included, give him a lot of credit for being a crime fighter. 36 percent down total crimes, 60 percent burglaries are down, GLAs are down 65 percent. Robberies are down 50 percent from that high. But they're up since last year and they're up except for shootings, which are down and murders, which are down. Every other index crime is up dramatically and people feel a lot safe. So what do what can we learn? How did we lower crime last time? Well, it wasn't that complicated. We hired cops. We did something called the Safe Street, Safe Cities program. 
And we toughen the laws, a lot of mandatory sentences, a lot of three strikes are out laws, things like that. And we built a bunch of prisons. And we also arrested and sent to jail a lot of people who didn't belong there. Um, every day, just, just last week, there was a story about three, three middle-aged men walk out, out of a courtroom after serving 30 years in prison for a crime they didn't commit in 1995. Teenagers, you might have remembered the crime. They were accused of dousing uh, a, an accelerant in a token booth and lighting a, 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 a token worker on fire. It was a horrible, horrible case. After reviewing the case, the prosecutors realized they had the wrong guys. The judge agreed. Um, and these three guys were let go up to 30 years in prison. They were arrested in 1995. And it's not just individual cases. You know, um, Donald Trump believes that we, 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 uh, we, oh, oh, we um, over-incarcerated people and charged people for things they shouldn't have done. He, when he was hitting Joe Biden, he was very proud of passing the First Step Act. And he said the crime bill was a total disaster. It was mass incarceration for black people, many of them innocent. I did criminal justice reform. This is Trump's tweet. Something Obama didn't even try to do and couldn't even do if they tried. Biden can never escape his crime bill. He's talking about a crime bill that I voted for. Well, no, that's not true. I didn't vote for the crime bill. I wasn't there yet. But I voted for a lot of the, the laws that came immediately after that, the tough the crimes. I'm, I, me, I'm, I'm one of the people who cast those votes. I was a tough-on-crime Democrat. I voted for the death penalty. I was, a very, I, was the, I was on the public safety committee in, this, in the city council. I, I was one of the staunchest defenders of police officers, always ran with a PBA endorsement. Um, but we now know – and by the way, when, when the First Step Act was passed that Donald Trump helped push through, 82 senators voted for it. The Fraternal Order of Police voted for it. There was a, a conventional wisdom that set in that we had gone too far and done too much. When Bloomberg – Bloomberg served for 12 years as mayor in, in our city. During that time – there were 5 million people stopped, questions, and frisked. 97% of them had done nothing wrong. They didn't get a ticket. They didn't get a summons. They didn't get arrested. They were just stopped, and they weren't people who looked like me, and we're going to talk a little bit about this with our guests. And so why is it? Well, it's because, like I was as an elected official and like a lot of people are when we talk about this thing, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And if the only tool that we have is throw the guy in jail and throw away the key— well, it doesn't always work that way. And so just this, just a couple of days ago, Lee Zeldin attacked. As it turned out, he was attacked with with uh, looked like a, a keychain or something that had a point on it. It was clearly an emotionally disturbed person. The guy wasn't even held. He wasn't held. Now, maybe they characterize it as a nonviolent thing. I don't know. I think you don't have to actually do harm for it to be an assault. And I think that Lee Zeldin actually was assaulted there. But he was let go without... Without bail. Now, remember, he was let go without bail, but he's still getting charged with the crime. It's just a matter that they didn't hold bail to, to make sure he comes back. It looks to me like an emotionally disturbed person. Now, Lee Zeldin has said he wants to fire Alvin Bragg, who just got elected, and who probably, if the vote was held today, would probably get reelected. Maybe he should also say, let's, let's fire someone called Sandra Dooley. She was the Monroe County District Attorney. That charged this that that uh, charged this person with with that crime. Maybe didn't charge them enough. The point I'm making is these are complicated issues, and maybe the answer is that we have to toughen our penalties. I believe we should hire more cops in New York City. I believe that that we should have much more transparency by every time police officers stop people, we should release that data as well, so we know what's going on. Maybe we do need to be in a place that um, that we have to toughen our laws again. You know, the bail laws, listen, they're only for nonviolent offenses. I have a concern that what's not getting talked about is all of the smash and grab of uh, uh, um, uh, all the smash and grabs that's going on local local drugstores, all of the low-level theft that theft is happening again and again. And for all of these reasons, I think that we need a little bit of subtlety to be in the conversation about crime. It is not enough just to say – Let's lock them up and throw away the key. But one thing I will say, if we are going to lock them up and throw away the key, then we've got to invest in Rikers. 
We've got to invest in hiring some more judges so that we can have these things happen faster. I think that there's got to be a lot of transparency about how we're doing things. But one thing we have to be clear of is who's supposed to do what. And when we come back after the break, we're going to have two guests. One, a former police officer who is now a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Another, a former um, a candidate for attorney general, someone who has been a Democratic elected official, someone who has worked as an advocate, someone who worked on the Coach Committee to help write these laws. Neither one of them politicians. Neither one of them talk show hosts. They're people that hopefully that we can have a conversation with to try to understand the nuance of this. This is the middle. We don't do the far left. We don't do the far right. We try to do common sense right down the middle. And when we come back, we're going to have that conversation, and we're going to do it calmly, and we're going to do it with facts and common sense. That's what we believe in here at WABC Talk Radio. Here on The Middle, thank you for joining us. We'll see you on the other side. Finding new ways to make change, reaching across the aisle to work with both sides. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner on WABC. And welcome back to The Middle every Saturday from 2 to 3. That's the crickets bringing us back in. You know, they did the original of that song, um, trying to be thematic here. We're talking about crime and criminal justice. Coming in at 3 o'clock, Curtis Sliwa. I think Curtis may be working alone today because I have to go head up to pick up my son at camp. Um, and But Curtis doing an hour alone is no sweat for him. I, you know, they say ABC stands for always broadcasting Curtis, so I'm sure he'll do a, a good job debating himself. So the subject today is crime and criminal justice. It's a big one, and we're going to be spending the entire episode today talking about it. And as is our want here on The Middle, we're not going to be doing the hot takes and the bumper stickers. We're going to try to have a substantive conversation. And to help us do that are two excellent guests that are going to join us now. First, we have on the line Eugene O'Donnell. He is a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, a former police officer, a former prosecutor, someone who has written and spoken extensively about crime and criminal justice. And here in the studio, Charlie King. Charlie's been a fixture in New York politics and policy for a while. He worked on the Codes Committee, which was the place in, the, in Albany that writes the laws. He worked on the Mollen Commission, advises the National Action Network, and was a candidate for attorney general. Gentlemen, thank you both very much for joining us today on The Middle. Good to be with you. Thank you. You know, let, let, me, let me start with, with both of you, but Professor O'Donnell, maybe you can start us off. You know, this has been... A couple of weeks, particularly well, a week or two, where we have focused a lot on the role of district attorneys. First, we saw um, Alvin Bragg come under a lot of heat for his decisions about who to um, who to uh, charge and who not to. And then, with the case of the Jose Alba case, it really came into focus when it's someone who clearly looked like they were uh, practicing self-defense got charged. And now we have a case up in Monroe County where uh, someone attacked the the candidate for governor, maybe we can start with the very foundational things. What is your sense about what, what – well, tell me, never mind your sense. What is the district attorney? Who are they supposed to be working for? They are, and what is their role supposed to be in criminal justice? Are they supposed to decide whether someone's guilty? Are they supposed to be trying to crack down on crime? What's their role? Well, it's never been more unclear. It's always been a little bit amorphous. They're supposed to do justice. Um, the difficulty we have at the moment is more than ever before – DAs have pronounced themselves kind of personal, bespoke people. So you are getting unvarnished there, certainly in the city, you're getting a, a, a view of the world that is particular to them, that is often ideological. I think it's often the product of being captured by a small group of people that they, they answer to. And the rule of law has sort of been collapsed as a result of that. So prosecutorial reform is long overdue. But the problem I'm having with a lot of this is the uh, the promise was they would review things like fare evasion and pot smoking. But now they seem to be confused about murder. And, you know, we've got DAs running for office saying the, the only people they want to prosecute, they're saying, are the police, landlords, uh, you know, lawyers. Uh, you know, we, we, we've really we've really seen some off the wall commentary. So we need to refocus this in theory. There's a statewide criminal law in theory. There's some uniformity, and there should not be huge variance from county to county. But in actuality, 
variants can be can be quite uh, significant. Well, you say there's there's uniformity, but the district attorney has to look at each individual case and then apply the law and the evidence, right? So, is there this this isn't it's a judgment job, isn't it? Well, the problem is we we I mean, and this has always been an issue. Charlie would know this. I mean, we used to run for AG on crime, which had nothing to do with the job. So there's always been a murkiness here. But now more than ever, you've just got you, you've got the introduction of just wholesale blind ideology uh, with a small number of people voting in these primaries, uh, and they're just talking to those people. And the larger community uh, welfare is being ignored, in my uh, opinion. Um, again, this has also been susceptible to abuse. It was abused on the right when we had the buildup, where there was all kinds of rhetoric. We had thousands of people going to prison, going to jail for junk stuff that should embarrass us. Uh, we, we had a mindless buildup. But now the DAs are in the forefront of a mindless teardown, where they really literally don't seem to be able to distinguish uh, intentional murder from uh, violation. You know, they, they, they seem to believe, or at least some of the people that surround some of these DAs believe, the system is so bad that nothing that an offender does is worse than the system. And I think that's a little bit where they diverge from the vast majority of people. The vast majority of people still think there are serious uh, issues of wrongdoing where you hurt people, where you have to come off the street, you have to come out of society. Uh, you, you know, and th- that's just the reality. Well, let, let me just, Charlie, I guess part of it is Professor O'Donnell's making the argument that people – that th- that this is not reflecting the views of people, but Bragg just got elected, right? And he, it, is he really departing that much from the platform on which he ran on? And isn't this what the is this what the citizens of New York County want? Well, I think it's a combination of both. I think it's a balance between safety and fairness, which is a constant tension. Um, I think what Bragg is not doing a good enough job articulating, and I don't agree with everything that he's trying to do, but what I think what he is trying to articulate is I want to make the system more fair. I want to put systems in place like how do we videotape uh, you know, I- interrogations so that sy- systemically the overall system is fairer, you know, putting in place things like body cams, how do we get rid of untruthful confessions, those kinds of systems in place so overall the system is better. Uh, I don't want to criminalize people who are not going to be criminals. I think that's the broader ideology he's trying to put in place while making society a safer place overall. I think if that was is what he's trying to articulate. I think there are people who voted for him who, as the professor is saying, are just way out there. You know, you had a uh, political consultant, Camille Rivero, saying if we had more art teachers uh, in schools that the crime rate would grow down. I mean, that's absurd. That's not what the majority of people want in, in New York. Um, but uh, And that's not what people voted to put him in place for. So the balance is how do you make the system fairer but also how do you keep people safer? Um, and I think that's the balance where but we do are. But you, do you believe in and, – and I'll ask you this first, Charlie, and then I want to hear what, what Professor O'Donnell thinks. Do you – is it fair to blame the district attorney who's been in for a couple hundred days for someone who's been a recidivist for, for five or six years? It, it, well, put it this way. Is it fair to blame the district attorney for crime? Well, no. I think that, and again, I'm not. I don't want to sit here and defend all of his policies because I don't agree with them. But it's a battleship to turn around a, f- a failed and flawed criminal justice system, where he can't be the circuit breaker for everything that that's going on. Uh, so you can't blame him directly for all of it. Uh, I do think he's got to do a better job to articulate what he's what he's trying to do, uh, and I think that he's just not doing a great job. Of all of it, but um, so that's where I'll start. But Professor, why don't you take a stab at that? To what degree can you blame a district attorney for crime when all they're doing? Well, I shouldn't say all; that minimizes it. What they're doing is taking the laws the legislature passed, including this bail law, and you can feel free to comment on that if you want. 
and they're applying it to the facts and, and, and to the facts of a case. You know, why don't you use – I mean the Zeldin case is a perfect example. They say that there's no bail if it's not a violent crime. They say attempted assault is not considered a violent crime. So the district attorney in Monroe County, could, are they really to blame for, for releasing that guy? And, and, I mean, maybe that can be a jumping-off point for you. I mean, is, is DA the correct place to blame for some of these things? Well, the problem is these people are not – they're self-styled activists. They're not really even pretending to be prosecutors. Who? They who? don't believe who? in prosecution. Who? Who? Well, somebody like Bragg, somebody like Larry Krasner. Well, wait, but well, Bragg, that, well, Bragg was a, life, a lifelong prosecutor. He's been a prosecutor his whole life and, and, and was in the Southern District and other places. Well, he's not saying he's not a prosecutor. Well, well, why do you say I, that? I, I beg to differ, Anthony. I believe that if, if you hear very few affirmative. His responsibility is to be the chief law enforcement officer of the county, affirmatively saying, I'm going to bring people to justice who commit heinous crimes. The vast majority of people, by the way, two things, are never brought to justice who commit horrible crimes. And the vast majority of people who get to prison deserve to be in prison, at least under the statutes. Okay? So they've, they have mainstreamed this idea that prisons are full of innocent people. These are very costly untruths. They're bad enough when they're being told by off-the-wall law professors. They're really dangerous when the chief law enforcement officer says that. The DA has to get up every day and say, how do I protect people? Charlie's absolutely right. There is a fairness issue. That fairness issue, however, is a 360 issue. When people are murdered, they lose all their rights. When people are orphaned, like those two kids, I was talking about Highland Park the other day, that child lost two parents and one killing. Okay, that, what, So those people lost their rights, and that child lost his rights. Okay, And these advocate, activist, political, operative people who sit in the prosecutor's office don't seem to want to do the prosecutor's job. Well, well hold on. But, but, but I, I, no, I, I understand that, but getting past that, that slogan, Alvin Bragg. I don't think he, uh, I, I don't think it's fair to say he hasn't prosecuted murder cases in Manhattan. I mean, where is that coming from? Well, where it's coming from is you talk to the NYPD, you talk to police people, you talk to victims. There, there has been a useful idiot uh, issue with so-called police reform and so-called criminal justice reform. There's been no airing of these issues. There's been no data evidence. It has been elitist-driven. It's been we know better than you. The community has been totally screened out of it. Victimization has been completely ignored. Wait, hold, okay, okay. Wait, no, hold it. Wait, you I'm said it. I'm no. telling you, campus after campus, right, you've had panels with five and six people saying the exact same thing, no contrary counterfactual, and that's how we got to where we are. The legislature, there's no testimony about the, the, uh, the effects of these uh, issues. It is a we-know-better-than-everybody-else approach. And the, well, and let's the, let's and go. The, we we have to. We're, we're hitting up against a break. But yeah, I hear you. We're, we're hitting. We're getting up against a break. And when we get back, we're going to let Charlie respond to it, and I'm going to respond a little bit because I know for a fact there were hearing after hearings in the legislature about the bail reform, and there have been hearings. Not needed. on policing. Not on policing. Policing was rammed through. Okay. Well, listen. When we come back, we're going to have a little more of this conversation. We have Eugene O'Donnell at Pace University, Charlie King of all kinds of places, and we're going to talk a little more of this, and we're going to get to the bottom of the Zeldin case also on the other side. Thanks for joining us on The Middle. We'll be right back. Finding new ways to make change, reaching across the aisle to work with both sides. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner on WABC. Welcome back to The Middle every Saturday from 2 to 3. Today we're talking about crime and criminal justice. Coming in at 3 o'clock, Curtis Lewa with Left versus Right. I won't be joining him at uh, 3 o'clock. I'm sure he will be uh, doing just fine on his own or bringing in some kind of a guest host because I have to split because I'm heading upstate to pick up Jordan from camp. The subject is crime. For those of you who are keeping track at home, that was the Bobby Fuller 4 bringing us back in with I Fought the Law. And we have um, Eugene O'Donnell of uh, John Jay College of Criminal Justice, former NYPD, and I want to talk about the policing side of this, and Charlie King, who helped, though he was a, the, on the Mullen Commission, helped write the laws on the Codes Committee, uh, um, was, is an advisor to the National Action Network, and ran as candidate uh, for Attorney General. 
Charlie, I want to understand a, a little bit about this notion that um, that Gene was was making before the break that these changes were rushed through. It's my my sense is that for years there had been conversation about the need for criminal justice reform and that that over um, over over criminalizing had gone on and our our, our our jails had swelled up too much. Is it, it, was this an instance where the dam kind of broke in 2020? With George, George Floyd, the protest began, everyone kind of woke up, and then there were a lot of things that were rushed in, including a lot of candidates for district attorney, that maybe hadn't fully thought about the need for, to keep public safety. Is, is crime up in some degree because of those protests? It's not that crime is up because of these protests. And, I, you know, I think one of the things I want to to address with uh, the professor I have a lot of respect for, but he's making, there's a little bit of a false narrative or he's making the easy case, right? It's like, you know, you can dismiss Bragg because, and, uh, because he's not prosecuting the murders. That's, you know, that's the easy way to dismiss him. That's the wrong point because y- you lose people like me uh, on the issue of crime. The what resonates with with people like me on the issue of crime, uh, Professor, is that, you know, if I'm walking to your house for dinner, a guy like me, African-American guy, gets profiled over and over and over again, going back to what uh, uh, Anthony was talking about um, with these stop, question, and frisk, you know, your neighborhood may be made safer because of that policing tactic, um, but it it also hampers my freedom. And at some point, if I get brought into the criminal justice system, you know, 97% of the people who got stopped got stopped for no reason at all. That is something that people of color get frustrated over, right? And so that is something that people who may agree with you on the policing issue, right, uh, that that uh, Bragg is trying to address. And so where people like you and me need to come to agreement on, on policing, he's trying to address systematically on the fairness issue um, that a guy like you needs to understand that he, where he's got some sympathy from a guy like me where he may not have sympathy on the broader issues. And that is, when we talk about coming to the middle, that's an important conversation where there's resonance with African Americans uh, in the community to, to fix the criminal justice uh, issue. And Gene, and before you respond to Charlie, let me just, just add something to that. You know, he got elected. Bragg got elected. And... I would say that there's a 10-degree or 15-degree difference in the way he's governed than the way he said he would. But he he made it pretty clear in his campaign that he was a reformer and wanted to change some of the decisions, the way that decisions got made. If we are going to have elected DAs, who should we be, who should we believe is doing the right thing? I mean, I mean, I think that there's a very good chance if District Attorney Bragg stood for re-election today, he would probably get re-elected. If you want to have elected DAs. This is what's going to happen. I mean, is is part of your solution to say take this hands take this decision out of the hands of the voters? Well, security is mostly assured for most people in New York County. They they would make sure of that. And the people that are most vocal about not giving it to people that don't have it or those who have it, and will always have it, and will go to whatever length they have to have. So if you want to see apartheid uh, safety, go to Manhattan, go to New York County. You'll see people that it will never have any safety issues. And Charlie's right. I was a I was a huge critic of uh, hundreds of thousands of stops and frisks as a management tool. I was a huge critic of broken windows 20 years ago. It was always simple, simplistic, and silly. But but the left now has to own the fact that people are dying every single day in the country by the by the dozens uh, in situations where the police could have perhaps interdicted guns could have saved those lives. And demonizing the police, um, you know, has, in my view, has always been very irresponsible, but it's particularly responsible now when you know that the New York City Police Department is basically paralyzed, basically doing nothing at all. Okay. There is, there is mayhem on the roads. 
Hey, can, 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 you, can you flesh that point out a little? What do you mean the police department's doing nothing at all? The police department has no proactive policing going on in any respect. The police are trying to get through the day avoiding conflict. That is a, that is a recipe for disaster. So, so this issue that Blasio ran on, demonizing the NYPD, it was very simple, as he showed. You could tell them, you tell them what to do and they'll do it. So you tell them to stop stopping people. They stop stopping people. People are not being stopped. Uh, approximately 100 people, 200, 300 people may have lost their lives as a result of that decision. So this is really politically. Um, but, but wait really a minute. I, I don't understand. But anyway, this, this debate, this debate is being run in Philly again. It's ran every few years in Philly. They stop and frisk. They stop stopping and frisking. People get killed, and they say stop and frisking. Well, but but so, but but Charlie, let me let's just pick up on that point a little bit. Didn't crime seem to have dropped under De Blasio? Yeah, it did. But Professor, first, I, here's something that you and I both can agree on. Uh, Anthony said that uh, stop, question, and frisk never stopped anybody that looked like Anthony. You and I can both agree that anyone who looks like like Anthony, that that person should definitely be stopped. I mean. God yeah, forbid anybody. God forbid anybody does look like him. First thank, on the list. Thank thank God well, no thank God nobody looks like him. One thing everyone agrees on in this program. Okay, I mean, yeah. just just all right. I appreciate the shot now, Charlie. But tell yeah. me about this. now. There, so liberals take over, progressives take over, De Blasio takes over. Crime keeps going down. Right? Do I have that right? Um. Yeah, crime does go down. I mean, look. There's a lot of there are a lot of reasons for that. I believe. I mean, there's. there's there, I mean, the professor can talk about this a little bit, too. I think there's also – we've aged. It's, a, it's an aging population in New York. There's that, there's that right? There's, that's one reason. Well, look, what's re- – I mean, I think we're kind of – we're oversimplifying this a great deal. And I'm not the criminologist. You, you, you know, you are, Professor O'Donnell. But the economy's in the crapper. You've got a lot of people that were deinstitutionalized after COVID – You've got you've got all kinds of of evidence in the in the population of all kinds of mental health issues. I mean, this Zeldin case. I mean, maybe we can pause for a, a moment. This Zeldin case looks like it looks like an EDP who uh, you know attacking someone with a keychain. And and I'm thank God that it, it didn't turn out to be worse. But I don't know how much you really learned from that case. I, I mean, there could be underlying things here that have nothing to do with criminal justice reform per se it could just be that crime sometimes goes up i mean isn't that the case well but again you've got advocates who, who tried to streamline this and make it simple and said oh somebody's sick so so they should be at large and that's okay you can make that argument uh the thing to know is that people are no less dead if they're killed by the mentally ill <laughs> and the families who are grieving them are no less in, in grief as a result so the the decision and this is the problem i have with the progressive prosecution the the sort of the sort of go silent go deep legislation on this not leveling with people something like bail reform which is mostly the right thing to do however when you when you are not uh when people are not being held prior to grand jury presentation when they get out the same exact day that they commit a heinous crime okay uh constitutionally that might be a a wonderful thing that has a deterrent effect uh, that that has a, a blurring of the deterring effect. People in the neighborhood see it. There's witness intimidation issues. Some of those people who get out on bail are going to kill people. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Right. And you I, have to level with people. So a lot of this was done without it. Now, you want to do you, – you want to be institutionally mentally ill people. People die when you do that. Look, I think, the, pro- that. I think the professor – I think the professor and Bragg, if they were in a room, would probably agree that when you deal with somebody like who went after uh, – Zeldin, if the guy is going to be released, you just don't release him. You have some alternative something to deal with this person instead of like letting them go into the wind and say, good luck, we'll see you at your, you know, at your next court date. Whatever it is, you try to figure it out. If, and again, I don't know Bragg well, but his argument probably would be we've got to do something with this person because obviously – this person is disturbed, and we have to do something so that this doesn't happen again. And, Professor, I figure you would come up with something as well if you're not going to hold this person on bail. And maybe having that person in jail is not the right place for them to be. The key point is is to keep society safe from somebody like this. And if it's not in jail, it's some, some sort of mental health alternative 
to keep people safe and to get, get this person. The well, kind you know, of look, we, we, we have we have only a minute left and this has been an interesting conversation. But let's face it about the Zeldin case and the Alva case. When there's videotape or you're attacking a gubernatorial candidate, suddenly everyone becomes an expert on criminal justice. If you take out the, the person involved in the Zeldin case, it is a, an emotionally disturbed person who has no criminal record, who's got a problem with alcohol, attacks someone with a keychain and doesn't get him, just attempts it. We would not be here talking about how this is the end of civilization as we know it. But let me just finish on the last 30 seconds with the police officers. D- uh, d- uh, Professor O'Donnell, do you think that the protests of 2020 have led to cops not policing as hard? Well, that's, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say the protests. The policing has been a dying profession for years, and we we've missed all the clues and all the opportunities to try to fix that. And the last half decade, uh, it is it is basically dead and buried in urban America. So, spending time on saying, and that's why reform is such a, a farce. Because reform of what? You have a, a profession that is dead. People are getting out as fast as they can. Nobody you, we want in there. Who's going to go in there? Who's going to put on a police uniform? Well, but but but, you know, but the, the look, we we should be glad that people do go into all forms of government service, and we're, we we hope people well, go. You into- can't you can't trash them. You can't trash them. Criminalize them. Take away the immunity they used to have. Threaten to take their homes away if they make good faith mistakes. Uh, and then on top of the physical danger, and say, "Oh, welcome to the job." You have yep. to, these things have to be done in tandem. I th- I, I think that's. I, I, point scoring. I think that's, that's fair, and I, and I think we create a job nobody wants. That's exactly what we've done. We created a job nobody wants. So, well, listen, I appreciate so nice, it. Nice going on the reform. <laughs> I appreciate it, Preston. You get the final word, Charlie King. Thank you both so much for joining us. This is a subject we have to continue. Frankly, it it takes that much to uh, to get to the bottom of it. When we come back on the middle, some a few final thoughts. I thank my guests. Thank you so much for being here on the middle. to make change, reaching across the aisle to work with both sides. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner on WABC. In I fought the law. That is the theme. Every Saturday from two to three, we are here on the middle, and then left versus right at three o'clock at the top of the hour. Curtis is going to come in, and he's going to be doing the show alone. I'm heading to pick up Jordan up at camp. Great conversation with Eugene O'Donnell and Charlie King. You know the problem is you just cannot. You almost have to divide this conversation into like nine or ten different parts, and. To me, I think some of the solutions that we arrived at when we've had past crime waves definitely can be examples of what we can do again today. I think we should hire more police officers. I should point out that Mayor Adams wanted to and didn't have the votes for it in the very progressive city council to pass a budget that included more police officers. Remember in the 1990s when David Dinkins got us to all agree to raise our property taxes to hire more cops – the city council at that time, I was a member of it, supported that idea because it was a bipartisan, across lines, you know, urgent situation. I mean, obviously, crime is much, much, much lower than it is. I mean, just compare it to 1990. We're like 80 percent lower in crime than we were then. But I think it is a time to hire new police officers. Another thing that Professor O'Donnell points out is the morale in the police department may be low because police officers feel the protests are directed at them. Look, every day is an opportunity to hire police officers and to train police officers and to make them more part of the community. You know, NYPD is a more is more representative of the communities that it serves than any time that it has been in the history of the city. That's a real success story. Um, and that means that new officers come on who have different experiences, and that means that policing can be different. But at the end of the day, policing is fundamentally the same as it's always been, which is identifying the people that are going to do crimes, trying to stop them before it happens, deter it. That's the primary thing that having so many cops does is deters crime. And then if they go out and do the dangerous work of arresting people, make sure that the rest of the criminal justice system deals with them appropriately. And that's where responsibility, I think, should get spread around to not just the district attorneys. Remember, the district attorneys 
What they're doing is taking the laws that were passed in the legislature and applying them. They didn't come up with this bail reform change. They didn't decide that someone who was shoplifting less than $500 can't be sent to prison for that. That's what the legislature did. And so if you want to, if you as the citizens, as the taxpayers, if you want to decide where to apportion blame for these types of things, then, you know, the legislature does deserve their share of credit and their share of blame. You know, this has been a fascinating couple of weeks, you know, because the district attorneys really have become the 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 focus of a lot of these, this attention. You know, I think we're going to have a conversation about the district attorney up in Monroe County where Lee Zeldin got attacked by that guy. And I've watched the video dozens of times. I'd be interested to know what you, dear listener, thinks about this. They say they couldn't hold him on bail because it wasn't a violent attack because he didn't actually, he attempted assault. They charged him with attempted assault. Looked to me like assault. He dragged him to the ground. That was, that was assault. I mean, the prosecutor could have made that, 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 that charge, but it also could be that they made the calculation that just charging, just having someone get bail, you're not going to hold someone on second degree or attempted assault, hold them without ever giving them bail. You're going to set a bail. And so all this has been about is about whether has, someone has the money to go put up the bail to go be at. When you're being held on bail, you haven't been found guilty of anything. Believe it or not, I know this is complicated for people to get wrap their minds around when they see a video like that. That guy that attacked Lee Zeldin is not guilty of anything yet. Now he is going to be. He is going to be found guilty of something. I predict. You know, I'm not a, I'm not clairvoyant, but he's going to be charged. He's probably. But right now he's not. And so, you know, to be outraged at the criminal justice system because someone like him wasn't held. I agree with what Charlie King said. You know, when you have someone like that who's clearly dealing with emotional issues, I think it's reasonable for judges to be able to take into consideration what they're able to do in every other state in the union. And that is the possibility that the person that they're holding will go out and do harm to themselves or someone else if they're let out. And they can be held for a reasonable period of time to make sure that that doesn't happen. We don't have that provision in our law. Literally every other state, I believe, has it. And I believe that we should. And the final thing that I think is worth noting is the thing that Professor O'Donnell pointed out when he was talking about um, uh, policing. I think it's perfectly reasonable— for people to protest that they think that there are abuses in the police department or that there are police officers who don't do their job well or police officers who abuse other people's rights. I think that's – protests are fine. But I think that uh, that people who protest policing, when they cross a line to say that this entire profession is a corrupt one or it is an extension of a, of a form of government that they don't believe should even exist. And that's where this whole defund the police. I don't, I think it's perfectly reasonable to say, Hey, I think there should be a 5% cut in the police officers and we should hire more mental health people. That's fine. I don't consider that defunding the police. Although I've already said, I think we should hire more police officers, but I think it's very important for us to acknowledge that just like every other profession, there are good and there are bad. And in policing, my experience after being an elected life for a long time, is that they're overwhelmingly good, decent people that are doing the best they can dealing with some very, very difficult circumstances. They're dealing with a lot of gray areas. You know, we have seen in the Jose Alva case and maybe in the case with Lee Zeldin a couple of black and white cases. But cases that law enforcement, that police officers deal with every single day, are frequently much more difficult to manage. They've got to pick their spots. They have to figure out where to be confrontational. They have to figure out where to try to diffuse situations. They're called in all kinds of different situations, and you never know which one of those is going to be dangerous. And I think overall, the police, particularly in this city, do a remarkable job. They really do. Considering the amount of stuff that gets thrown their way, I think they do a remarkable job. But that doesn't mean just like a politician, just like your neighborhood baker, just like anyone. That doesn't mean that there are not people who are going to not do their job well, who are not going to have the temperament necessary for it, who are not going to have the experience necessary for it. We lost a lot of experience on on September 11th, and then a lot of new guys came in, and now those guys are retiring. And every year it gives us an opportunity to train better, to recruit better. And we as citizens, what can we do if we want to hold people accountable? It is perfectly reasonable If you want to protest abuses, perfectly reasonable. That's what America is. And that's true if you're upset at the sanitation department, the police department, the department. It doesn't matter. You're a politician. It doesn't matter. Perfectly reasonable to protest and be good. But if you you should not or you ought not 
lose sight of the fact that these are public servants who are trying at the end of the day to preserve peace and to try to figure out the best thing to do. And you also should also recognize you might want to protest the district attorneys. We elect them to use judgment. So when we say hurry up and let him go to when we're talking about Jose Alva or hurry up and arrest that lunatic when we're talking about the person that attacked um, uh, uh, um, uh, 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 now I'm, I'm blanking on, 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 on the governor, uh, the governor candidate's name. When we're when we say go ahead and arrest him, arrest that guy, we're, we're saying the same thing. We're saying to people whose job is to practice judgment to go practice judgment that we think is right. We don't have all the facts. We don't have all of the details. Recently, we get videotape of everything, and we should be understanding and deferential that these are professionals who are trying to do their judgment. But there is accountability. District attorneys, we get to vote. We can throw them out. Members of the state and Senate and Assembly, we can vote and throw them out. Lee Zeldin, if you think he's right, that we should be, he should be in charge of firing um, district attorneys, you can vote for that guy. You can vote for members of Congress and deal with the federal judiciary. That's how we have accountability. But I think the point that I would leave everyone with today on the middle is we should make sure we're putting the responsibility where it should be and not just creating whipping posts out of someone because it is convenient. I think that if Alvin Bragg would, were doing a good job he would be willing to sit here with me on the middle or sit with Curtis or sit with John Katsimatidis or sit with one of the other folks here and answer some tough questions because he's making judgment calls and we have a lot to say about whether those judgment calls are the right one. And that's true of our state legislators as well. If you're going to pass these laws, pass these reforms, if you're going to make these changes, you are accountable not only to make the right decisions in our view, but to be accountable to answer questions about them. And I want to say in advance of this show, I reached out to Alvin Bragg's office and I said, maybe you won't want to have him on there, but I'll even accept someone who comes on the show and just defends Alvin Bragg. And they've yet to get back to me. So next week on The Middle, we'll have another episode where we push off from the left and from the right. I'll give you an update on what's, uh, what went down with uh, Operation Pickup Jordan. Stay tuned with us after The Middle. Coming up, left versus right with my friend Curtis Slewa. Thank you so much for joining me. Have a great Saturday afternoon. <laughs>